welcome to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago, and joining us here is Glenn Fitzgerald. Yeah, it is. Also joining us, Jed Brewer. Greetings! With us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, Lee Younger. Yes, certainly. Indeed, we have a great show lined up for you. We've got some great questions to get into that we're excited to dig into. But first, I must declare some seasonal product emergencies. Oh, Not an emergency. emergency. <laughs> That's pretty specific, I know. But we've got a couple of things we'd like to get through here. One, um, there has been a a an outroar, uh, I think, rising to the level of kerfuffle on, you could reasonably oh. say. But first, before we get to that, I want to... Because it's it's Easter time, this will be the last show that comes out before the Easter holiday, and it's going to be a little different, you know, year for a lot of us. We hope you still all still have a lovely holiday. And if you're if you're waiting, if you're wondering what's that thing that could, maybe could kick up the socially distanced, you know, egg hunt or whatever for your church or family, kick that up a notch. Might I suggest going on the internet and looking for I quote tomb toy filled plastic egg twelve piece. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> say say that again slower. Tomb, toy, already problem, filled, uh-oh, plastic Easter egg. What is this tomb toy oh filled with, Matt? Uh, stuff Jesus. What? <laughs> Which wow. is out there, but not the worst answer to that question by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> so we've got a gray egg-shaped thing, clearly stone-shaped, and uh, with he lives plastered <laughs> on it. And then when you open it, there's a little bearded fella in there. (laughs) Plus white Jesus. There's only like a centimeter of skin showing, but they did find a way to make him incredibly Caucasian. (laughs) I have have a few things on this. And and for the record, maybe the Caucasian part's okay, given the rest of this is a disaster. So we just kind of line those things up. (laughs) But first of all... um. If you're looking to give a nice, fun toy to your child, Tomb is probably not going to want to be at the top of your list. Unless your kid is the Crypt Keeper. Yeah, I mean... Or just shops at Hot Topic. Yeah, I mean... Also, a Tomb is not shaped like an egg that you... you Also, Jesus did not emerge from a stone egg. You can't prove that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is you know i don't i don't mean to nitpick here but it, it, it's it's there are some thematic problems here well there's another thing too which is you know normally well first of all normally he is risen is the liturgical thing that that believers in jesus say the the phrase he lives i think that comes from mary shelley's frankenstein Matt, if i'm not <laughs> right mistaken right. could be both Maybe there's a maybe there's a a Halloween version of this where they got it mixed up and it's a little Frankenstein comes out of a thing that says he is risen. Matt, it's pronounced Frankenstein. Ooh. Thank you, Igor. The thing I love about this, and this is a good way to get your children started off being very, very um, suspicious of religious things, because when you get the egg, the little plastic egg, and you open it, it's supposed to have candy in it. Yeah. Right. Nothing. Way to find a way to disappoint your child with Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a good first experience. Well, honey, he is the bread of life. (laughs) Okay. I know I have made a horrible mistake by looking at the other products on this website. Oh, I thought you meant by being on this podcast. 
Well, but this is uh, apparently there's another product on the same website called Jumbo Jesus is Out of This World Rocket, uh, where it's well, basically a plastic shaped rocket, but it sort of opens up in the manner of an Easter egg. And inside is a tiny Jesus who rides on the rocket. Now, here's the part that really blew me away is the review. I was warned that the strings on the parachute didn't last very long. That's right. Jesus is wearing a parachute that he uses when he climbs out of his rocket. Okay. Well, (laughs) Jesus is a responsible aviator, Glenn. Would you imply he would be otherwise? Well, I was warned that the strings on the parachute wouldn't last very long. That's very true. I ended up removing all the stickers that were supposed to hold the string in place. And then just he does a ranting review of just that's amazing. All, all of the problems with the Jesus rocket, other than the actual theme of the rocket. Well, because of Glenn's discovery, I have also traveled to this website. And the tomb toy filled plastic Easter egg has a one star review wherein this person received a product that they, the review is titled One Legged Jesus. <laughs> wow. The eggshell was perfect. The Jesus doll was embarrassing. Yes, but not for the reasons you're describing. <laughs> I improvised and made it work by focusing on the empty Easter egg without focusing on the one legged Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Another Does, review was just titled "Could Be Better." Well, that's true of most things. To our to our one-legged Jesus one-star reviewer, who's uh, I'm not going to share their username, but the first word of it is "pastor." So there's that. <laughs> um, so you got a little plastic tomb egg with a white Jesus in it, and the the fact that it was missing a leg was the bridge too far. You're like the children can't see this. Oh my gosh. Also, again, scripturally, prove he wasn't. Yeah, really good point. Just saying. There's that. So we have that that vision of products that are come out that maybe uh, some people should have more of a problem with than they do. And now we move to what uh, what in this holy week uh, some Christians a product some Christians have decided to lose their mind about. That comes to us from uh, rap personality Lil Nas X. Uh, he of the Old Town Road and whatnot, who has a new song out. Uh, the, apparently, the uh, the video in which he gives Satan a lap dance, mm. which I maintain sounds like a great phrase that a Southern grandpa would say to a kid who's like standing too close to a creek. <laughs> that boy's giving Satan a lap dance. You come on back here. <laughs> <laughs> but so to apparently a very popular song. So they. A streetwear brand is is partnering with him to release some sneakers. They are titled literally Satan Shoes. Hmm. They are uh, Nike Air Max 97s. Uh, there are going to be 666 pairs made, all numbered right. $1,018. Uh, they contain 60 cc's of ink and one drop of human blood. <laughs> Which is some real uh, 80s metal band trying too hard. Yeah, just about to say, yeah, yeah. This yeah. actually feels like 
something from the uh, the uh, what what's the uh, the mockumentary with the spinal rock tap? Band? Spinal. This is spinal tap. That's exactly what this feels like. It's something yeah. from that movie. Except in spinal tap, they get it all mixed up and it end up with sixty cc's of blood and only one drop of ink per pair, and they just be like <laughs> really wet. I think I think the band Kiss did that. Like put put their blood in like their record or something like that, or allegedly or whatever it was. Based on what I know of Gene Simmons, I believe that. Um, so you won't be shocked to know that this this patently ridiculous thing that uh, is red and black sneakers, uh, the cover, the like box looks like a a Renaissance painting of people descending into perdition. Dante's Inferno. It has a Bible quote on it of Luke ten eighteen. Satan fell like lightning from heaven, which is a pretty metal phrase. Um, our friends, uh, some of our uh, Christian. Uh, nut, nut bar friends have decided that this is very offensive, mm. even though it is, you know, a guy who, and I like Lil Nas X, but he, he rose to fame by wearing a sequined cowboy suit and singing with Billy Ray Cyrus. So I'm not sure he's going <laughs> to, he's that much of a threat is what I'm saying, but right. no less than the governor of South Dakota, Christy Noam said this very confusing thing that I'd like us to parse because she knows she's supposed to be offended. She's got that part right. down. Right. But I don't think she's got the particulars. So she, so you got, you know, they're called Satan shoes. There's supposedly a drop of human blood in them. So you right. think, well, there's some material to work with there if you're going to be a right wing nut job about it. Right. Here's what she po- focused on. This is the quote of the tweet. Our kids are being told that this kind of product is not only okay, it's, and here are the scare quotes, exclusive. Do you know what's <laughs> more exclusive? Their God-given eternal soul. <laughs> Whoa. Here's the yeah, thing about that. It's not like everybody's got one of those. <laughs> yeah. F- functionally, that's the opposite of exclusivity. Right. There's only 666 of these pairs of shoes. There's right. however many billion people. That's definitionally less exclusive. And it also makes her sound like her problem with these shoes is that there's not that he didn't bring enough for the class. <laughs> Look, if we're going to knock the uh, the really absurd products being sold to Christians that uh, uh, are supposedly thematically appropriate to them, we have to do the same thing when when we approach the Satan shoes. Now, now understand, I would have no problem with the Satan shoes if they were shaped as if they were some form of goat hoof. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, that makes total and, sense. Or just an, an attempt to evoke uh, a hoof like... Uh, these aren't you know cloven I mean? in any way. Yeah, yeah. if you had a, a nice cloven hoof look, you'd say, yeah, that's yeah, that's what Satan would wear that. But, you know, it's just it's basically just a, back, a black pair of uh, gym shoes. That's That isn't anything. This is just I mean, a black he, pair of gym shoes. They do have a nice uh, pentagram uh, yeah. zipper attachment there. That's something. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? You're just you're phoning it in. If you're gonna try to offend people, you gotta take it. I mean, you got blood in the shoe. I mean, yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah. Also, I don't. I'm gonna look up right now uh, the age of um, Ms. Noam because my guess is she is you know of an age where you know the whole rock and roll was. Was Satan thing? Yeah, she's she's in her in her late forties. So you were around when people when people were still scared of satanic music. Yeah, like they were trying to make a going concern of it. Uh, this is 
this is pretty clearly tongue in cheek. You got to calm down. Right. Like, yeah. you know, you, if you didn't protest highway to hell because you think, <laughs> you know, there's nothing funny about the road to perdition, Mr. Young. Yeah. It's, it's hard to take this seriously. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, also, do you know how many shoes you're helping these people to sell by being outraged? Because uh, you, you, you couldn't fall in for That's the bait any, any better than you did there. I just got so distracted by my outrage, I didn't know what else to do with it, Glenn. <laughs> That's a good point. I just had this mental image of, like, if Legalistic Jed were the father of a teenager whose yeah. teenage child walked in the door wearing the Satan shoes after sure. Legalistic Jed, who most certainly follows Miss Noam on Twitter, right. sure, absolutely. had already been outraged about the tweet. And if Jed's teenage son... You know, legalistic Jed's teenage son. Then, after seeing the tweet, walked through the the front door of the house wearing them. Right. You're you're wondering how would how would legalistic Jed uh, react in that moment? Yeah, to his teenage son. <laughs> well, you know, it's actually really good that you ask because uh, I can tell you. I need to pull it up here. I, I can tell you the exact of an image in front of me of the the exact alternative footwear that I think legalistic Jed would would suggest to. <laughs> His teenage son and um, uh, son, I am glad mm. to see you. For children are a blessing from the Lord, <laughs> and as such, I am grateful for my fatherhood of you. Um, I do have concerns about your choice of footwear. Um, the good book says, "How lovely are the feet." Of them that bring good news. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Impressive. But right now, I am concerned that very lovely feet (laughs) may be unequally yoked with um, Mm. quite unlovely uh, tennis shoes. Uh, But the good news of our Lord and Savior is that there are um, shoes that would make a witness. uh, Shoes that would... um, Send the right message, an uplifting, a good message. And uh, my understanding based on this graphic in front of me is that they may have been crafted by the very same um, entertainer, I believe is the correct word, uh, the the little Nassics. Uh, I don't know if I'm if I'm saying that right, but but the. The, the little Nassix. Yeah, it's Greek. Mm, ah, the little Nassix. Uh, he seems, I believe there's a shoe for you to look at that is also co-sponsored by the Chick-fil-A Corporation, and I know you like Chick-fil-A. <laughs> That's right. Uh, our little Nas X, if you missed this tweet, uh, put up Foot Forward a Peace Offering, which is a white sneaker with uh, wow. Chick-fil-A colors, the Chick-fil-A logo, John 316 and my pleasure stitched into it. <laughs> so I don't think they're going to make actually, but I really hope they do because, you know, people live in Georgia got to wear stuff on their, sh- their feet too. And Absolutely. that's nice. Well, ju- just as we're, as, as just as we're wrapping up here, I think whatever we can do to get sort of a Satan shoe tie in to get in on the cash of that. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, that would be, that would be, I mean, maybe they've done Satan. Can we do like a Beelzebub? Uh, sure, absolutely. You know, some kind of, uh, you know, something. Sure, I think I think a lesser 
a lesser demonic entity is a good place a good place to start air baphomets that kind of thing <laughs> yeah sort of you know a bunch of pigs going off a cliff that type of jazz yeah so you gotta start somewhere <laughs> the bale payors retro sevens oh very mm, nice that's very nicely done and on that note we're going to declare emergency off though i have the feeling that Christian's faking outrage over totally made up stuff is an emergency that ha- we do not have the power to end yep. and is going to continue on. What we do have the power to do is bring you Bridgebox, the first of every Ooh. month. Head on over to missionusa.com slash Bridgebox. If you want to check that out for yourself and sign up. We also are going to continue bringing you the Bridge Live every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Central Time over at Facebook.com slash The Bridge Chicago. So we do hope you'll join us for that. We are having a lot of fun. And if you can't catch it live wherever you are in the world, Every single episode is archived at the videos tab at that same Facebook page for you to check out at your leisure. We're going to jump to our first question here. It comes in. Actually, I do the uh, the plug for where you can uh, where you can write to us. Let's see if let's have a fun thing where you uh, you at home get to listen to whether or not I remember to edit this out or not. <laughs> We're going to jump to our first question here. If you have this all the way to the end, I'll use some ways you can touch this, or you can scroll down to your episode description and find the links there. First question comes in and says. Hello, I have a follow-up question in response to episode 459 regarding trauma around church and religion. Is it appropriate to date someone who is Christian but not comfortable going to church because of trauma that happened in their youth? I never thought about this until I heard your response to friends with such experiences, so now I wonder how that can affect relationships. Should that person not be dating at all, or is it a proceed with caution situation? Thanks so much for your take on this. And thank you so much for your question. And Glenn, where would we start off? Well, I think if you're the the question is is not whether there's something wrong with this person if they if they know if they're sort of self aware enough to know that this was uh, a negative and abusive situation and they know that they need to uh, make changes to the way they live out their their spirituality that's that's positive from the standpoint of they're they're being self aware and, and they're they're clued into what they've gone through. Uh, so that's not a negative. Let's think about someone who's trying to actually live a life of faith, and they're also working on these issues and addressing it. Um, you know, is there something wrong with that? And I would say, no, That's that sounds good to me. You know, someone who's saying, I can't do it the way I have done it. I don't want to do it the way I have done it the way I was raised in it and all of that. I, I think that's good. I, I think it's good to say this is this is not working for me and I want to find something that does. So to me, that's a positive. We're, we're not in negative, negative territory uh, if, if that's what we're looking at. Um, and I think the even better news is there are actually a number of uh, activities, a number of ministries that you can plug into, things you can participate in that essentially function very similar to what church mm-hmm. would do for you. Uh, so, for example, I, I had problems in, in the church that I was raised up in, and, you know, that was became a negative situation. They had problems in that church. I began volunteering as a prison uh, ministry volunteer and later became a chaplain there, became a professional at it. Uh, but as a volunteer, I'm going down there first thing Sunday, and we have a worship service, we have a sermon. It's 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 church by any other name. Uh, it's good fellowship. It's good, uh, good uh, worship time. All of that. Uh, so it met that particular need. Now I had a, a lot of fellowship needs that kind of weren't met because they were weren't really on the similar 
uh, level of growth that I was, and they were, they were dealing with their own issues and that sort of thing. So I needed to augment that with a good um, uh, men's Bible study that I was in at the time, which was really fantastic. So you put the two together, you know, I'm I'm doing great with that. And uh, so I think you could look at, if it's uh, something like I'm just talking about here, a prison chapel service, it could be sort of a worship service that's connected to um, uh, volunteer activities at a homeless shelter, uh, you know, a rehab uh, facility. You know, I've done, you know, many times preached at worship services uh, in in rehabs and, you know, found that that ticked all those boxes for going to church for me. Uh, so I think there are options there that you can explore. Uh, finally, final point in this, and, and this is where I really would, would inspire both you and anybody that's in this position that you know, is to look at the boundaries are good. It's, ba- it's good to put up these things and say, I don't want to, I just, I don't want to burn myself out trying to deal with stuff that I know is jacked up. Uh, at some point, they're they're going to take me down, and I'm not going to lift them up. So, what's the mm. point? I I think it's it's good to establish those boundaries. I think it's even better to create not only a, a safe space for you and the other people who may have gone through what you've gone through, but create a space that fosters growth, where you're able to do this and do it better. You might be in a smaller group uh, where there's a little more parameters on what's acceptable and what's not. Uh, but to think in terms of creating a house church, uh, creating a, a little small, small church plant uh, where you can create a safe space and you can explore these issues without triggering any of that trauma, I think that's fantastic. And I wish more people were thinking along those lines. So, uh, so yes, I think you do have a lot of options here, but it's about exploring that and, and uh, thinking outside the box. That's a fantastic place to start things off. We, where would we take it from there? Yeah, I, you know, I have a, a, probably a lot of a, a similar story to Glenn as far as the the church that I grew up in, and and one thing that I would say about that experience is that th- what we were basically told about dating in the church that I grew up in is there's just kind of one thing that matters, and that is you date somebody that is is a is a believer and is super engaged in, in all that church stuff. Kind of the 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 vibe that we were given at church is if uh pick one of these people, you know, that's at the youth group and the and the whatever, the youth choir and all that kind of stuff and help them with the ministry, and you're basically golden, that then the, the relationship's gonna be fine. The the problem with that is, of course, that in order to make relationships work, there are a host of complicated issues that you have to be willing to work through and grow in and learn how to communicate, learn how you're going to face challenges together, learn how to to develop a healthy way to have conflict. Like dating is about learning all of those things, not only about yourself, but the kind of person that you want to be with. When I was raised in church, the the whole idea is, oh, you just get a person that believes in Jesus and you're good. Well, that is a ridiculous way to look at the way dating works. Um, There are so many factors that we want to take into consideration. And and like really the biggest question for you is not, is this person engaged in a ministry or something like that, but, but are you willing to do the work of what it takes to make a relationship work? And uh, the person that you're with, are they good for you in the space of you trying to figure out learning how to do a relationship? 
Relationships take boundaries. Relationships have conflict conversations. Relationships have, uh, you know, just figuring out how to make two different people work together, figuring out your chemistry and harmony and all of those kinds of things. You may find that with somebody that's super engaged with church stuff. You may find that with somebody who's been burned in church stuff. If somebody's been burned by church stuff, that doesn't make them undateable. That makes them a pretty common human being from the people that we know and have worked with. A lot of people have a lot of church problems that they're processing and trying to figure out. The other thing I would say is this. I have, and I'm sure the other three guys in this podcast would say the same thing. I have known a lot of people who are extremely engaged in church and the ministries of a church who have very toxic relationship stuff, just are not mature in any way. They don't know how to they don't know how to be humble. They don't know how to face challenges. They don't know how to push through. They don't know how to work with other people. Somebody being engaged in church stuff and ministry stuff does not necessarily equal somebody that's in a healthy place for being in a good relationship. The The critical question is understanding that relationships take a lot of work, that serious relationships take a ton of work. Marriage takes everything you've got. And obviously, we're not talking about marriage, we're just talking about dating here, but that's kind of where we're headed with any of these relationships. Understanding the, the, the amount of work and challenges and communication and growing and learning together, are you willing to do the work? The, that's the critical question here, not is this person engaged in the, you know, in the youth ministry? That's not going to be the thing that makes somebody dateable. It could help. If you've if you've got a a great environment, uh, you know, and 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 people are growing and learning and stuff like that together, but it's not some kind of a Christian silver bullet. Like that's the thing that makes it makes it all go. Are are the people engaged in this dating relationship willing to do the work that it takes to grow and to learn together, to face challenges, to figure out communication, to learn how to be humble, to learn how to serve one another? Those are the kinds of questions that we need to figure out. A great place to take that. And Jed, where would we close it out? Well, it's a great question, man. We're really glad that, that you wrote in. Again, we we love follow-up questions. And you've already heard some really good stuff. I, I'd point out a few more quick things. The, the first is everyone is dealing with aspects of their past. Absolutely everybody. You will never date anyone or marry anyone who does not have a past that is affecting them, that is impacting them. That's true for literally every person. So Everyone has areas that are sensitive um, and they have things that they would rather not do. So if you're if you're looking for someone who has just no reticence about anything that you're probably not going to find that because that really doesn't exist. And for what it's worth, um, you know, I'd like to think I'm a reasonably healthy person. Um, I've been to some very, very jacked up churches in my life that I, there's no amount of money you could pay me to go back to. So, um, you know, at, at the very least, the idea of there's certain kinds of churches I'm not going to go to. I'm, that's true for me. Um, to reiterate some of what you've already heard, I think it's really, really important if you were dating this person or any other person is, are you guys talking with each other? Are you communicating clearly about how things are going and how you're feeling and then <clears throat> are you each working on your own selves? Um, you know, just as everybody has a past and everybody has, has, you know, baggage of one kind or another, in order to, to grow and be healthy, you need to find a way to work on that. 
that is not co-equal with uh, suck it up and go back to church. That's not what I'm saying at all. But um, finding a way, a place, maybe that involves a counselor or a therapist, but finding a way in a place where you can begin to look at the the um, the, the baggage and the wounds and the hurts that, that are still uh, messing with you. Uh, so you can get some freedom in your life is, is a really, really good thing. And, and so that would be good for your partner to be doing. That would also be good for you to be doing uh, a couple more quick things for you. The first is um, in the spirit of, you know, are they working on their stuff? Are you working on your stuff? <clears throat> are they engaged in their own spiritual life? That is a very different question from, do they like organized church services? Uh, if you go to most churches on Sunday morning, most of the people you see in that building are not engaged in their own spiritual life at all and, and haven't been for years and years and years. And actually, part of the reason for that is that a heck of a lot of church in the United States, at least, basically tells people, we want you to agree to a creedal statement. We want to do a couple of ceremonies with you and then lock it in. Don't change anything ever. Just maintain that till you die. And um, Or sit I think- back and we'll entertain you. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that is not uh, a healthy life. It's not a healthy spiritual life. So um, I think if if your spiritual life is important to you, um, A, that's great. And B, finding a person who where their spiritual life is important to them is a good idea. That makes total sense. But I think a metric of are they engaged in their own spiritual life probably is a a better indicator uh, of, of health than, you know, Will they show up and kind of dream about cookies for an hour on Sunday morning while pastor drones on about something that in and of itself means almost nothing. And that kind of points to the last thing that I'd I'd really encourage you to look at, which is whose approval are you concerned with? Because there's one way to read this question, which is, well, I just want to have a, a healthy and good relationship. And that's cool. And we want that for you too. There's another way to read this question, and it kind of all circles around you using the word appropriate, where it kind of sounds like you want sign-off from other people in your life um, on the dating relationships that you're going to have. And I really want to encourage you to think about who those people are that would be signing off on your relationships and why you want their sign-off. And let's look at some left and right limits for a second, because this is important. On the one hand... If you started dating someone who was just incredibly toxic and was clearly just a terrible influence on you, I mean, you, you would want your friends and loved ones to, you know, kind of say, hey, are you sure this is really what you want? That, that does make sense, and, and that's, that's a, a good thing. On the other hand, every long-term healthy relationship is going to involve the two of you doing things your own way in every regard. Uh, when it comes to spirituality and religion, when it comes to the way you deal with money, when it comes to whether you have children, how you have children, um, where you live, who works, who doesn't work, uh, you guys are going to have to just make it up and do what works for you. And you're going to have people you know who don't approve of the decisions that you make. That's right. That's an absolute guarantee. And given that, it would be good to be thinking now about why you appear to have people on your list that you want to approve of your relationship. I think it's worth asking why. Um, why those people are on that list. And I think it's worth asking in what context their approval makes sense. Because again, if you, if you start dating someone who um, uh, is on record as being an unrepentant ax murderer, well then yes, we, we may want someone to, to weigh in and say, maybe not so much with that. But if it's, you know, I'm, I'm dating someone who's a wonderful person and we 
volunteer at the homeless shelter and, you know, uh, and it's great. And there, you know, we're both working ourselves, but aunt Susie doesn't like it because we don't make it to the Southern Baptist church in town. Well, I think we really need to ask why on earth do we care what aunt Susie thinks about this relationship? That is a very, very good point. All that is amazing stuff from these guys. Also Jed's insistence on including unrepentant in his anti ax murderer, uh, statement there gives me pause. <laughs> Just going to put that out there but uh, nonetheless all good advice and we're gonna move on to our next question here comes in and says i was really disturbed by the information that came out about the atlanta area shooter a lot of people connected his crime to being a product of evangelical purity culture i grew up in that environment and while i know it was harmful to me in a lot of ways i never really thought of it as radicalizing what do you guys make of this connection and what if anything does the church have to learn from this and uh, again, a really great question. We're glad you wrote this in. It's, it's obviously a big topic. There's obviously a lot going on. But Lee, where would we start off? I, man, it is so disturbing to see, um, like, the places that Christians have have taken Christianity. Um, it's disturbing to see, um, like, to even, like, even to be a person who calls yourself a Christian at this point, it feels like you have to throw in a million caveats. Like, well, I'm a Christian, but not one of the ones you're thinking about because it has been so unbelievably just tainted by Christian nationalism. And I think that one of the things that we have to do is to loudly and soundly reject um, Christian nationalism wherever we see it. I mean, for some reason, the, what's happened in in this country and you know especially at this in this country at this time is we are seeing people who are including racism as part of their christianity and um so that we have like um you know like to to certain people to be a christian is to also reject certain people um whereas jesus said anyone who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Um, that's in John chapter six. Um, and yet we have in this country, and we have, a, by the way, a long, long history of it, obviously a long history of uh, a history of slavery, a hist- history of racism. Uh, the first, the, the, like America had a specific law banning um, the immigration of, 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 people, you know, coming to labor in this country from China in, in like, I think it was Matt, you might know, it was like the 1880s or something like that under Chester. Yeah, Arthur. sounds right. Um, it was in, um, but it was like the first time that the United States had an actual law, um, that was directed against a certain group of people, like a specific, uh, country of immigrants. And, um, and so now we see because of Christian nationalism, because of racism and, and, and because of white, the racism of white Christians, um, we see actual violence happening against Asian Americans who Jesus loves and we love and people who really love Jesus love everybody. Hello. And what we, you know, it's like, it's such a, it's just such a bizarre and awful thing that like. To be a Christian, you would have to set these caveats of like, but not like that. Um, you know, we've talked a lot. If if you're a person that's listened to the podcast for a long, long, long time, then you've heard you've heard us talk about purity culture before. Um, and you know, and and the the idea of purity culture is that we would somehow 
Um, you know, we would put on this facade as if we were pure, and then it's making everybody liars. It's making everybody, you know, like in my church where I grew up, which we talked about in the last question, they literally had all the youth in a ceremony in the sanctuary, um, and their parents are in the pews, and they had a table up at the front, and they wanted everybody to go sign the True Love Waits pledge. And then, literally, I kid you not, Lord, walk the pledge paper over and hand it to their parents. Perfectly normal, perfectly healthy. <laughs> you know, and, and this, this kind of stuff, all of this stuff, like, uh, so when we're talking about, um, we're talking about the, you know, the racism that's in Christian nationalism that's led to violence against people that Jesus loves and that anybody that really loves Jesus loves. Um, and we're talking about the just the the just the complete fallacy of all, all the things about purity culture, and all of this is a rejection of what the go- the gospel actually is, and the message of the gospel actually is: every single person is a sinner, every single person needs Jesus, every single person is a person that Jesus loves and says, I want you to come to know me, and I want to, I I am offering you a free and complete and total forgiveness for all your wrong, and I want justice for everybody. I want freedom for the oppressed. I want, I want good news for the poor. That's the first, by the way, the first sermon that Jesus preached, and we have to be people who reject all of this. The idea that we have, um, that we're working towards some kind of false purity, the idea that we, the idea that some, some people are outside and rejected by Jesus. Um, this, is the, this is the crap situation that we're stuck in because of Christian nationalism, because of racism being embedded in people's, somehow, in people's religion. We have to reject all of this, and we have to be the people who um, are proclaiming and propagating a message of, of freedom for the oppressed, a message of good news for the poor, a message that Jesus loves everybody, a message that everybody is a mess and there is and there is forgiveness and a home available for anybody that wants it. A wonderful, wonderful place to start that off. And Jed, where would we take this next? Well, you're wondering what what does the church have to learn from from all of this? And I think the I would summarize it thusly: ideas have consequences. That is what the church should learn from this. That when you, for example, use a really bad idea like shame as a motivator, you get really bad results. Mm. Um, when you blame other people for your sin, you get really bad results. So let's kind of stick a pin in that and come back to it. Let's talk about where this came from because it, it, it uh, is important. So – uh, if you go back to particularly the 1980s and particularly guys like, um, oh, what's the dude from Focus on the Family? James Dobson. Yeah, James Dobson. If you go back to, to dudes like that and, and in that era, basically there were a group of, uh, well, they called themselves Christians. There, there were religious people who basically decided um, we can make a ton of money if we make an industry out of convincing teenagers not to have sex. Um, so that's what we're going to do is we're just, we're going to have books and conferences and paraphernalia and everything. And we just don't want these kids to have sex. That's the only thing that we care about because their parents will pay a lot of money if we can make that effect happen. So that's, that's the thing that we're going to do. Um, this, this should already be, um, uh, hitting you that it's a really bad idea, but part of what was going on here was the idea of short-term gains versus long-term problems. So 
If you have one behavior that you really super duper want to make sure doesn't happen, you can do all kinds of things that are unwise, that are unethical, that are not biblical, um, and that are going to blow up in your face to at least in the short term curb that behavior. And if you can dig it, that's exactly what evangelicals did for about 40 years in the United States. So I I mentioned two of the things that they did for the sake of of short-term gains, but I want to look at both of those. The first is the idea of using shame as a motivator. Um, and uh, the, the, what the focus on the family, et cetera, people did was just to declare any form <clears throat> of sexual sin, and particularly the kind you struggle with, as the worst sin ever. And the thing about that is it's not true. Uh, there's absolutely nothing in the Bible at all to suggest that that would be true. Um, <laughs> in fact, um, almost any person with common sense would say that some degree of lust or sexual sin would be the most common sin of all time. (laughs) Um, But whenever you label anything, the worst thing you can possibly do, what will inevitably happen is in the short term, you may talk a certain number of people out of doing it, but it's going to create really toxic ripple effects down the road. That's just a guarantee. There's, there's no way to get away from that. So again, you you made a, what one could almost describe as a Faustian bargain. We're going to teach things that are uh, at best extra biblical uh, and at worst heretical. We're going to use shame as a motivator, and that's okay because we'll get paid in the short term. Um, down the road, there may be problems, but that money's spending right now. The second thing that was going on was the idea of convincing people to blame others for their uh, for their sins. So one of the things that comes up a lot in, um, what was the term she used, in evangelical purity culture, is these irresistible sirens. I mean, I would love to, you know, just behave myself, but it's just, it's just so irresistible. And that's exactly what a lot of evangelical purity culture has, has taught, is that sex is just so irresistible that, you know, it is the worst thing in the world, but particularly if you're a cishet white male, if you were to fall prey to it, it's probably someone else's fault because of just how irresistible it is. I think you can probably immediately see what's wrong with that because you're asking someone else to take responsibility for your own decisions. Um, that's not very Christian. It's also not very cool. Uh, but Again, in the short term, if you pair those two things together, the shame as a motivator and the the blaming other people for your sins, you can probably convince a certain number of people to not do a thing they really want to do, and you can make money by doing it. In the long term, there will be huge, enormous problems because ideas definitely have consequences. And when you trade in the gospel, which is actually good news for something that you made up, which is what they did in the 1980s, you get huge, huge problems. I want to add one more thing. I just want you to, to think about it. It's something I've been thinking about. You don't have to go with this, but I, but I want you to, to think about it, which is Jesus said that you know things by their fruit. And I think one of the things that has plagued American Christianity for way too long is we divide everything into good theology and bad theology. What does the Bible teach? What does it not teach? How do we stand on the hill of truth? How do we boldly proclaim the truth? I think we need to add a third column, and that is theology that doesn't work. Mm. I want to encourage you to just think about the concept of analyzing beliefs based on their outcomes. I'm not a theologian. I don't know everything that you should or shouldn't believe about the Bible, but I do know that outcomes matter. 
And I do know that when you have an approach that is actively hurting people, that's actively hurting you, we need to look at that. There's something in there that at the very least needs to be adjusted. Because I don't think there's just good theology and bad theology. I think there's definitely theology that is not working and needs to be looked at so that we are not causing more suffering in the world. Another great layer to this question. And Glenn, where would we close this discussion out? Well, I think if you if you draw together all the really good stuff that Lee and Jed are are saying, it kind of points to a big question, which is like it's easy, easy, easy for us to figure out what to be against here. And uh, the playbook says, figure out what you're uh, supposed to be against, and then cancel it, and then protest it, and and fight against it. Which, if you look at that, that's on some level, it's a necessary step. You have to make it clear. I'm not okay with this. This is not acceptable. The difference is when I bring healing to that situation. That's the difference that we're missing here. That's the missing part of the puzzle. Um, A couple of years ago in Canada, they had um, a a sort of a a hate crime. Uh, A a business was spray painted with racist uh, things and so forth. And so they were immediately offended by this, and the whole town, this was in a fairly uh, smaller community, the whole town just turned up to say, no, no, we don't want this. This is, and some dude's already painting it, you know, before they can even, the news crews can get a picture of it, somebody's already painting, just a dude, nobody knows where he came from, just walking up the street with a paintbrush and a can of paint, it's already repainting it, you know, just, we're just going to wipe this out. That, That idea of, one small evil thing being overwhelmed by a whole community just pouring love into that situation. That's a picture that we need to have as to what the church is supposed to be doing. If we're not doing that, then other people are hating stronger than we are loving. And in that kind of situation, we, we're not going to have a, a very strong voice in terms of saying, Here's what Christianity is really all about. We need to show that with our actions and show that love and bring healing to these situations. That's all excellent stuff. I will tag on to the, the end of the very, very good stuff that these guys gave you that um, there are some, uh, obviously there's an extreme situation here with the dude who, you know, shot up a bunch of uh, massage parlors in the Atlanta area. And as far as the, the aspect of, what does this say? I think there are some very important things that this says and that this is accurate of, and these guys have gotten to the heart of a lot of it. But I do think there is a, a hitch in the analysis of he, someone who was so radicalized by an ideology that they become violent. Um, you don't hear X number of crazy evangelical purity cultural sermons, and then you go shoot people. You, we have someone here who wanted to shoot people. Mm-hmm. Now, why he wanted to shoot people? Uh, why he chose the targets he chose. Those are very important questions and they are worth looking at. And there's something we can learn from, but this is a huge outlier. So if you're, if your thing is I'm sitting here and I've heard all these same messages and I'm worried that I'm, you know, on a, a, a you know, one uh, kind of Manchurian candidate style, uh, you know, key phrase away from, from losing my marbles and being a violent person. That's not that, you know, do people, people who do violent things are do them because they want to do violence. There are other factors in there of why they want to do that and who they want to do it to, but they want to do violence. So I don't think you have to worry about that. But there are a lot of things 
that we can take from this that are very dangerous. And these guys have touched on them. And one of the ones I want to call out is the the only emotion we're comfortable with being comfortable with in some circumstances being anger. There's a lot of, you know, we're, we're trying to, we're, we're losing something. There's something being taken from us. You know, we read it in a joke with that, that tweet from the, the, the governor of South Dakota that we read at the beginning that was about shoes. A rapper made ended with, we're in a battle for the soul of this country and we have to win. Here's the thing about battles. People shoot people in battles. Mm-hmm. So if you're framing right. your Christianity as we're in a battle against other people, this is, it's not a natural growth of it, but that's, that is on the same track. You know, people who use the the verse about how we, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against, you know, forces that are unseen, but use that to mean people they don't like is that that's a little out there. And the other thing we talk about this a lot, a lot on the show is the idea of doing it hardcore and being intense and being the most and clearly from what he from what he has said and what people have taken on about uh, about it uh the gentleman who did this shooting he this was his version of being hardcore he said i was i was so tempted i was trying to remove temptation the actual thing jesus says in the bible to men who are sexually tempted is you should pluck out your own eye that is how you be hardcore right, right. we are not that's probably metaphorical we are not um you know we are not proposing that in any way but the idea of being hardcore is to eliminate and hurt and deal with these external forces because, as, as Lee and Jed started us off, the, a thought of that all temptation and all, the, all your problems are external. That is not true to the Christian faith. All our problems are not external. Our problems are internal. Our problems are with ourselves. That is our primary problem. That's the problem Jesus solves. He's not calling us to solve the problems of other people tempting us. He's calling us to deal with our own stuff. So as, as to combine that with what these guys said, there's a lot that religious communities can learn. You know, when you combine this with the stuff that happened in January 6th, those type of things, there's clearly, this is, this shooting is an isolated incident. The, the anger and the wanting to hurt other people, that's part of being covered in the kind of capital A, capital C American Christianity is certainly a thing. So we do want to deal with that, but this is not a natural outgrowth of something you were raised in. So I don't want you to be worried about that. I don't want you to think that you, are on the same thing this guy's on because you heard the same kind of messages. This is someone who wanted to hurt people. So if you're not on that, you're not on the same thing. But we can all look at the ways that these ideas and attitudes, maybe even more than ideas, can get into a good thing we're trying to do and corrupt it. And that is definitely a true thing. We're going to move on to our final question here. It comes in and says, I was wondering if you could offer some advice or tips. Congratulations. That's what the show's for. You found the right place. I recently joined council at my church, and over the last couple of meetings, I noticed whenever we vote on something, I seem to be out of the loop. I feel like everyone has info I don't, and they are just ready to push a vote through, whereas I feel like I'm being presented with new info that I didn't get time to think or pray over. I want to make sure I have the information and time to think it over. I've tried to express this before, but I don't know. Maybe I wasn't clear. Is this sound, does this sound like something I'm making a big deal out of, or how do I handle other people's replies? that seem to be pointed when I mention things like this. Am I reading too much into this or just being insecure? How do I go about things? And a, a great question, a, a great question with a, a potent combination of church stuff and people stuff. And there, there's a lot going on. So Jed, where would we start off? Well, I talked to Hallie because she um, knows all this stuff. She's involved in, in running a number of nonprofits 
And so uh, I asked her how things are supposed to work. So we're going to talk first about the way that these things are supposed to be set up, and then we'll go from there. So uh, any nonprofit organization, which would certainly include uh, a church, here's how this is supposed to go down, whether you call it a board or a council. Uh, First, you're supposed to hold board or council meetings regularly. Um, Second, the staff of that organization should be providing the members of the board of the council with uh, memos and material that outline coming decisions. So uh, relevant context, relevant information, um, and that should be happening well in advance of, of those meetings, that the, the minimum would be giving you a week to review documents that you've been sent before a meeting. And then, of course, uh, those same staff from the organization, whether it's a church or, or another type of nonprofit, are meant to field questions uh, and concerns from board members or council members in response to the memos that they have been given before it would even make sense to have a vote. So with that in mind, let's take a quick case study because it's the kind of thing that a church could be looking at, that a nonprofit could be looking at, and kind of look at, at how that would play out. So suppose there's an idea, we, maybe we should look at building a new parking lot. Well, this is the perfect kind of thing that you would want, whether it's your board or your council, you'd want them to look at because it's a lot of money, it's a lot of resources, we don't know, golly gee. Well, so the, the first thing that you'd probably look at is just high level, do we want to kind of uh, begin the the basic due diligence to look at what would even be involved in um, uh, building a new parking lot. Okay, so what we, what would happen is the the church or organization, the the staff people, the paid staff there, they would you know put together a little word document, couple paragraphs of here's why we're interested in building a parking lot. Here are the steps that we think might be good in terms of kind of investigating that. We may want to pay a small amount of money to um, a consulting firm. We may want to reach out about zoning to the local municipality. So those are steps we're looking at. We will look to have a vote about whether or not to proceed with this at the next meeting. It'll be two weeks from now, and we're emailing you that today. You send it to the 10 members of the board of the council. All right. And then everybody on the board of the council has, you know, a couple of weeks to look that over, think about it and shoot back questions to the staff members. You know, are we, are we thinking about this aspect? Are we doing this other thing? Have we thought about the, the, what if there's a, a collision on our property and the liability? All of that is supposed to happen so that when the board meeting happens, first of all, the board meeting is not eight hours long. We can, you know, efficiently move through things, but we can bring the matter up for a vote. A vote can be taken. A relevant debate can be had, but we all know what the situation is so everyone can be clued in to why we're talking about it. Then we can have a vote and we can all move on. Hit pause here for a second. That's how that's supposed to work. Again, uh, with a church, with a nonprofit, you have a board, you clue them in well in advance of decisions, you give them material so that they understand what the decisions would be. Um, They're able to, to respond to questions and concerns. There's actual debate at a meeting, and then a vote is taken. That is how that is supposed to happen in any professionally run church or organization. Now, that said, that is clearly not happening at the church on which you are uh, on the council. And it sounds like part of your question is, what do I do about it? But also, what does it mean? Well, let's look at the what it means first, because we kind of need to start there. Uh, you, you wondered, are you being insecure? Are you reading into things that sometimes feels like you're getting pointed questions from, from other council members? There's a, a great uh, uh, thinking tool uh, called Hanlon's Razor that more or less says the following. 
never attribute to malice what could be easily explained by incompetence. Mm. Let me say that again. Never attribute to malice what could easily be explained by incompetence. And I say that to you because you're wondering, do these people not like me? Am I making you know a pest of myself? Is this a, a bad fit? And I think the likeliest thing is, no, they're just really bad at running a board. They're really bad at running a council. They're really bad at running an organization. And the reason I suggest that is most organizations are really bad at the administrative things that they're supposed to do. Most churches are really, really bad at the administrative things that they're supposed to do. Running any kind of nonprofit entity actually takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of experience. And there's a lot of churches and nonprofits out there. So you wind up with a lot of people who have the best of intentions, but have no idea how to run that stuff, how to run it properly, how to do it in a way where it works well and everybody feels clued in and everybody has a good experience. And just by the numbers, that's almost certainly what you're dealing with. With all that said, you have two, uh, you have three options. The first is to just put up with it. That's a bad option. You shouldn't do that. The second option is to decide that this uh, just doesn't feel like a good fit for you. And so you're done. Um, people, uh, uh, come off of boards of councils all the time, you know, even those that, that technically, you know, we want you to have a six month term. You don't have to do that. If it, if you're not feeling, if it doesn't feel like a good fit, you can just say, ah, I want my Tuesday nights back. But the other thing that you can do that I think is worth at least having a couple conversations about is asking, have we thought through the way that we distribute information to council members? Have we thought through the way that we make sure that, that, uh, stakeholders and decision makers are clued in so that we can have efficient meetings with relevant debate and timely voting. Uh, it's worth having those discussions. Um, if you if you have those discussions and they tell you uh, we hate you and your shirt looks stupid, well then that takes us back to you should probably exit that council. Yeah. But I think th- the thing that you are likeliest to find is that is you're probably lovely people who have absolutely no idea how to run an organization or a church or a council meeting, but we could probably work together to move things more in that right direction that Hallie lined out for us. That's absolutely right. And I can tell you this from personal experience. If someone says, we hate you and your shirt looks stupid, don't respond with, my mom bought me this shirt. They'll only make fun of you more. It really, <laughs> really doesn't help. But a lot of, what does help is a lot of great advice going on there. And Glenn, where do we take this next? Well, I totally agree with Jed on this. I, I think I can picture in my mind how it, you could get sort of a feeling of like, am I being insecure about this? Because it's it's a it's sort of a weird environment when you think about it. These board meetings, uh, most of them are. You know, it's it's kind of an unusual thing in that. Um, sort of the rubber stamp element is is often a fairly common feature of that. As as Jed's pointing out. What you want to do is have that information there ahead of time, so by the time you're getting down to, uh, you know, shifting gears, everyone's already spoken up about it or, you know, asked the relevant questions, all those kinds of things. So ultimately, uh, you may be coming in on the end of that process, so it it looks like a bit of a rubber stamp, but it just has been discussed before you got there. That, you know, I hope that's what's going on there anyway. Um, the same thing with sort of fast moving details that, you know, if you're, uh, you know, kind of like Jed's lining out, if you're, if you're thinking of, you know, uh, putting in a, an addition on the building or doing, you know, making a new parking lot or something like that, you've probably been talking about that forever. And you might be just kind of coming in on that where there's just a lot of little details flying around and not a lot of people 
investigating much about it because we've already, you know, we've already laid the groundwork on it. Uh, so none of that's evil in and of itself, uh, but it is worth asking what's what's the actual point of the board? That is to say, what's what's the board meant to be accomplishing? Uh, in a lot of uh, church situations, it, it it may really be set up to provide more of an accountability structure where it's, you know, uh, as Jed was laying out, you know, here is what we are doing. Here's how we're, we're dealing with it. Here are our challenges. Here are the things we're going to try to do to deal with those challenges. Here's our long-term plans. Here's our goal. Here's our, you know, uh, goals and schedules and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, the board is just there to make sure that they're staying on on point with that. You know, in some organizations and indeed in some churches, it's got enough of a sort of specialized thing or a complicated thing where the board is there to provide real input and real insight into things. Uh, you know, that's different from, you know, if, if you were on a board uh, 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 in a let's say a homeless shelter and you know nothing about running a homeless shelter and they know everything about running a homeless shelter. They're not looking for your deep insights into that. (laughs) Uh, So that's not, that's not an insecure thing for you. It's not them insulting you with that. It's that you may be there more for accountability and just to, you know, keep things from running off the rails. But I think uh, I like where Jed was was kind of throwing that over to uh, it, uh, to you in your experience. I think th- applying the idea of earning the right to be heard is key in in what he was saying there. The idea that um, take some time to listen and take some time to take it in, uh, earn the right to be heard by by showing that you are absorbing the information. I think the big key to that is asking questions. So on on a, a a couple of rare occasions, I've been asked to come before a board, either of a nonprofit organization uh, or a church, you know, board of elders, that kind of thing. And they have some specific thing that they're dealing with, and they want to ask me about it. It's important for you to know that even where they're bringing me in to say you have some knowledge of this situation. I am 99% sure they're not going to really listen to anything I say. So, you know, if you feel like you're not getting a lot of input, that's that's just kind of a feature of the, the way these things work. But um, my goal is not necessarily to say something really amazing to blow them away and change their thinking. My strategy is actually to ask a lot of questions. Uh, and the more that you ask them questions and the more they struggle with being able to answer those questions and come up with good answers for that, the more they sense what they need to be doing and what they need to be thinking and how they need to change their approach on that. At that point, I might make a couple of key suggestions, get them started in certain directions. Uh, but I think you can employ the same thing. If you earn the right to be heard, you listen, uh, you ask lots of questions, you show that you're getting yourself informed on this. And you have some little bit of input, just some little nugget you want to contribute, and nobody's really caring or paying attention to that. I think, as Jed is pointing out, at that point, you know what's going on. You've, you've earned the right to be heard, and they're not listening to you, so what's the point? Uh, if uh, you're in a position where uh, you're, you're there to try and help and contribute, and, and they're looking for you to do that, 
uh, and yet they're not listening to you, that's a problem. If it's just sort of an accountability thing and just, you know, showing uh, to a board that you're accountable to, here's what we're doing and here's why we're doing it, uh, and you're there to kind of rubber stamp that, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you don't want to be doing that, that's okay too. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily anything sinister, but uh, I think it is uh, worth asking if this is what the Lord wants you to be doing. Another excellent point there. And Lee, as a member of an elder board of a church, where would you close this out for us? This is a really cool question. And uh, and I I love the things that you've heard on this so far. And I was thinking about... Um, I was thinking about how I would, uh, like, if I was if if I was going to take, uh, like, where Jed started us and just kind of give some headings to it. I would say one, the heading of dignity. You you have the you you have the right to not do this, as Jed's saying. You could just get off of that board. Um, and and then another heading that I would put on on the response that you heard from Jed is humility. Does the board that you're part of have the humility to have a member say? We might want to change the way we do things. Those are really, really important questions. Um, one of the things that um, I mean, all the stuff that Hallie lined out that that Jed shared with us is really, really important and organized and detailed stuff. My experience with a lot of organizations, a lot of church stuff, and and not just the elder board at the church that I'm a part of, but other things like committees for parachurch parachurch organizations that I've either worked in or spoken at or things like that, is that it's made up with a lot of people who are typically uh, like-minded about certain things and sometimes are friends. And what you have in a situation like that is you sometimes have uh, a certain group of people who maybe hang out, maybe they're in other conversations together, and and certain things get decided outside of the context of the meeting. Um, I will tell you this. This is something I've learned in being part of churches and parachurch organizations for a long time. It may be unfortunate, but it's just a truth of personal um, relationship-type organizations. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. That's a thing that—I mean, it's one of those things of like, wait, are you putting all the onus on me as this person that's not being maybe included in the thing? I'm not putting all the onus on you. I think Jed's and, and Glenn are exactly right. You have the right to jump off of this thing. You, they, they need to have the humility to be willing to change and to be more organized and more professional. All of the things that these guys are saying is true. But it's also true that in, in organizations of human beings where some of the people are, are friends, um, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, and I I tell you that with just out of uh, uh, decades, literally, of experience at this point. Um, and, and I think that's especially true in large churches, um, that there there are so many people involved that they can't possibly give personal attention to every issue that's going on in the church. But when you have someone who says, I am engaged in this process, and I am interested in this, tell me how this came about. And that was a cool thing that you guys decided. What's the process of deciding that? Or, um, you know, can you guys walk me through how that whole thing came about? That was a really cool deal. A lot of times with with church people, um, when you demonstrate um, interest and engagement, you're going to find a little more inclusion in the way things work. Um, church people, <laughs> um, I, I'm going to, to quote Jed, sort of, Church people love church stuff, and when they find other church people who also like church stuff, they're like, oh, here's my people. 
this person also likes church stuff. I just tell you that to say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Engagement is going to bring you into more of the rooms where it happens. And that's not putting all the onus on you. But I think it's definitely worth trying to to and and I I want to completely align this with what Glenn was telling us about asking questions, asking questions, showing interest and engagement, and being um, being somebody that's for the thing. Um, church people love that kind of stuff. Church people that are running churches they love people that love church. <laughs> And so when you when when you uh bring that engagement and that interest and all that kind of stuff and you're the squeaky wheel that wants to be in the conversation and wants to wants to find out how the you know how the sausage gets made and all that kind of stuff I I I would say that's a good place to start knowing the whole time that you definitely do not have to stay in this. You can you can jump out of it anytime. You definitely can be a positive force if they have the humility to be to be willing to change and maybe you'll be part of the organizing force. But um but knowing that the uh engagement interest um, and being the squeaky wheel is a it could be a great place to start aligning with what Glenn was saying about asking questions and all of that. All these guys make excellent, excellent points about this. And I, I will tack one small thing on the end here, which I have never been on a church council, but I have been the new guy in a lot of situations. And there is an art to being the new person. And some of this stuff that hits you hits you strange, there may be a lot going on there, maybe some things you don't want to be involved in, not because they're shady or bad. You just don't feel like that's a good fit for you. And you take the the option that all these guys are reinforced to you that I will reinforce as well of not having to do it. But one of the things that can be very helpful, one of the places you may want to aim your questions is at someone who knows how this works. That may be the person who invited you on. It may be a friend you have who's already on the yeah. council. A very good set of questions to ask is, how does this go down? Because if you've never been part of it before, what you have to go on now is any information you've been given, which is purely theoretical and often has not a lot to do with the actual nuts and bolts of how things run. You know, you may have been told, well, we meet together and we have a robust discussion where we, we all bring what the Lord has put on our hearts. And then we, uh, you know, we, we hash it out and then we vote. And that may not be the way meetings actually run, which is fine. That's, that's fine. And you also have your assumptions about it, which when you're the new person, your assumptions are probably r about how something should go that you've never been involved in before. It's not that they're bad or wrong. It's just they're probably not going to help you figure out how this actually works. So if you can grab one or two people, exactly these guys are standing on the side and say, okay, it feels like we already decided on how we're voting on this stuff. Is that what goes on? You may find out, oh, well, this is just some older stuff we've been talking about for a long time. Or, yeah, we kind of like to keep the meeting short. So if we have questions, we email them during the week or whatever. It could be a million different things. You need to find out how this actually works. And then you can be in a really good decision to apply the wisdom these guys have given you to, if you decide to be part of it going forward or, um, you know, pull that ripcord option, both totally fine, but a great place to start. If you don't know where else to start when you're asking questions, when you're looking to get things is finding someone you can, who can shoot you straight and just asking, how does this actually work? What are the nuts and bolts of this? You know, the, I was part of a, a, a group once a wonderful, but I was the new guy. And the person who was in charge asked for volunteers. And I was like, I can do that. It was like five things in a row and no one else volunteered, which is weird because I knew them all. They're great. And somebody pulled me aside at the end and said, oh, yeah, the person in charge, he doesn't like seeming bossy. So what we do is he asks for volunteers and then none of us volunteer. 
And then he asks who he wants to do to do it. Which is a little insane, but it works for all them. Just no one told the new guy that's how it worked. So I signed up for like five things. And the person who in char- was in charge thought I was an egomaniac of unbelievable proportions because I tried to inject myself into everything. But that wasn't a problem with them. It wasn't really a problem with me. It was just that I jumped in and kind of just went by what I thought was right as opposed to finding out how the mechanisms of this thing actually work. It's a great place to start figuring out that information these guys have pointed out to you. All right, if you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumble.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, we are in the Linton season here. So we're going to take out the song. This is Jed's version that he originally recorded for the Water Tower, I believe, of yeah, yeah. Old Rugged Cross. Woot! Got that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love Woot. you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. The Say That Podcast, we're currently hard at work on roasting hot takes on the theology of footwear. Could your house slippers be leading you down the road of perdition? Stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) On a hill far away Stood an old rugged cross The emblem of suffering and shame And I love that old cross Where the dearest and best For a world of lost sinners was slain So I will cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down And I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday for a crown Oh, that old rugged so despised by the world Has a wondrous attraction for me For the dear Lamb of God Left His glory above To bear it to dark Calvary So I will cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down And I will cling to the
course was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died To pardon and sanctify me So I will cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down And I will cling 